This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Alex Merrill. Welcome to the Inspirati. I've enlisted a roster of ultra-talented international creators and curators to join me on this podcast to talk about how they've charted their individual paths, overcome challenges, and found their true artistic selves. From candid conversations with eminent makers to showcasing exciting up-and-comers across the industries of art, music, fashion, entertainment, literature, and design, we get to illuminate our perspectives, learning from these unique stars within the constellation of global creation. The Inspirati was created for those seeking inspiration and those seeking to inspire. Thanks for listening. Along each of our individual paths, it's likely that we've classified others as well as ourselves. She's an intellectual, he's a jock, you're a yogi, I'm a creative. But as we age, these classifications, which once may have provided a feeling of resolved identity or of camaraderie with a group, begin to feel tight in their simplicity. Enter Joe Holder, a true unclassifiable. If you've only known him as a master trainer on Nike's app or a wellness columnist for GQ or that guy getting Naomi Campbell through lockdown workouts on her Instagram or like me as the most commanding figure at your gym, it's likely you haven't experienced the full breadth of Joe. In the short leap from college athlete to one of the most influential coaches in fitness and sports, he picked up a client roster of creative powerhouses like Virgil Abloh, Heron Preston, Bella Hadid, and Ricardo Tisci. But getting fashion A-listers into their best physical shape has turned out to be only a ripple on the surface of Joe's impact. His overarching philosophy, the Ocho system, is based on eight core components for wellness— Physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, occupational, financial, social, and environmental. After years of fitness crazes that seem to cause as many injuries and lifestyle imbalances as six-packs, this holistic approach is a breath of fresh air. Our conversation felt more like speaking to a national health minister than a personal trainer. This is not a man who has time to take shirtless videos at the gym. He's too busy reading James Baldwin and trying to galvanize America's underserved communities to commit the radical act of self-preservation and build the foundation for a lifetime of good health. 
We talked about what it was like to teach the very first masterclass on wellness, how the more blessed you are, the more obligated you become to lift others up, and why it is so important to stop and listen to the music. Since recording, I've been eating more vegetables, prioritizing meditation, adding exercise snacks throughout my day, and finding more ways to be of service. I'm so excited to share this episode with you, and I hope it will bring about positive changes in your life as well. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Can't complain. Where are you right now? I'm in New York. I'm in Bed-Stuy. Nice. Have you been there mostly this past year when travel's been restricted or I've been moving all over the place actually so I've been I sublet in New York, in the city for a little bit I came back here I was in Colorado I was in Arizona I've been in Cayman I've been traveling I've just been doing it safely you can do it safely if you just know how yeah for sure I've been in Canada the past year and we have this mandatory two-week quarantine so I can't yeah. really go anywhere it definitely <laughs> is a change of pace for sure yeah two-week quarantine that's how it was in the Cayman Islands, they make you do a mandatory two weeks. But yeah, it's definitely been a change of pace. Yeah, for sure. So the first time I met you was super, super briefly at S10 about five or six years ago. And I was working out and you have a very commanding presence in a gym environment. <laughs> <laughs> and you're already like blowing up with fashion clients and all that. But since then, in following your career, you've always just been such a breath of fresh air in your holistic approach to health, and you communicate in a really creative, engaging way. So it's really just been such a pleasure to see you soar since then. Thank you. I mean, no, nah, that means a lot. I do appreciate that. And yeah, it's been a wild trajectory um, that's kind of been expeditious, I suppose, for lack of a better word. But yeah, I mean, it's exciting. You got to kind of keep going. You can't really ever rest on your laurels per se, but also at the same time, still kind of be in the moments of whatever relative success or additional slight comfort as a result of the hard work. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I've just always been interested in where the industry is going, not currently where it is. And especially at that time, you know, five or six years ago, I was very focused on where it was going. And I think a lot of that has been expedited by COVID, but yeah, it's been a wild ride from being, you know, I guess the young kid training all these fashion uh, people in the fashion world to now, you know, where it is now being a little bit more solid footing and a, and a presence in my own right. How would you describe your current philosophy towards physical, mental, spiritual health, how that all works together? It's all, it's all vertically integrated. You like, it should be from start to finish kind of within and then horizontally integrated with the support system that you create. So everybody is such stark and segmented thinking, but I, I, for me, what I became fascinated with, like the concept of expert generalist, you know, especially everybody either wants to go super deep and, and super focused in one area. But my thing is you go super deep and focused in a couple and then see how that connects to other things. And if you look at the body, if you look at society, but if, in particular, if you look at wellness, my philosophy basically, and that's what the ultra system is, is that there's eight core components of it, right? Like there's eight key components as it pertains to wellness. And for me, you know, it's like, it's physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, occupational, financial, social, and then kind of the environment. But for whatever reason, you know, even in a gym environment, people always would focus on kind of, you know, fitness, what you eat, all that stuff. And to be perfectly honest, that's the least important thing. And it's also the easiest. 
And what makes it harder is the environment in which you're in, which you're, you know, not just what you're eating, but how you're approaching your thought processes. What's your financial status? Like, what's it, how, where's your joy in your occupational life? And my concept now has shifted more. So I'm very intrigued by what I call the concept of the aging athlete. I'm sorry if my, I just came from the dentist. So like my face is slightly droopy. <laughs> I just realized it. You look good. Don't worry. This is a perfect <laughs> moment to do audio. <laughs> it's just like, nah, it's fine. You know, you got to show real life, but it's just aging athlete. It's just, as, as we all know, I'm not getting any younger. You're not getting any younger, but you know, you're still, still a great, don't worry. Is how do we figure out once we start to get older that is not as facetious as it once was? Within the walls of S10, you know, even though it treated me well, it was facetious. At the end of the day, it was really just about who was there, who was working out, getting the best workout in. And now as you age, you're going to, we're going to want to be in it for longevity, but we also understand the things that are set up around us that will promote success. And this is what I find super interesting. No shots at anybody, but what we're noticing now is that people are always reminiscing about what was, mm. right? So they could trick their brain into, into this thought process of success Yeah, that, that I had it and not what I'm currently doing. Yeah. Now my thing is, especially, you know, it's a slight, I guess, non sequitur, but as we're getting older now, what are the other dimensions of our, of our wellness strategies that we want to take into account that will promote health? So whether that's financial, whether that's through our work, whether that's intellectual pursuits, whether that's our kind of friendship strategies, the physical stuff becomes easy. You got to work out. It's not hard. You got to work out for half hour a day, right? It's not that hard. It's just certain things that you have to not do that become hard. But we try to make it so, seem so difficult for the most part, at least for middle class folks, mm-hmm. that it's that hard for us to take care of ourselves. And it isn't. It's a scapegoat. But then my whole thought process has always been there's an apathy of the affluent and then there's inequity of inequality. Apathy of the affluent is if you're middle class and you have the means to take care of yourself, look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself why you're not doing it. I honestly don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Like at this point, it's like, oh, so hard is this, is that. That may be the certain case for certain individuals who may have medical conditions and things of that nature. But for most people, they just don't think it's important. So they don't do it. And then that becomes a greater issue because then for people who it actually is hard to overcome, whether it be of medical conditions or it be because you're lower class, then people just look at them and be like, oh, you're just lazy. Yeah. It's messed up, right? So I don't know. I think as I'm aging and all the other work that I'm doing, I've always been intrigued by, you know, more so a public health approach and, and just figuring out ways to improve the community around me and, and also help others reach a better point. But it's a journey. And I think when you're young, you get a little bit, not disenfranchised, but you get a little bit turned off because you want everything to happen so fast. You want everything to be fixed. And that's not the way that it goes. So a lot of young folks or people, you know, of our cohort kind of have just said, fuck it, you know, this world's not really for me, it doesn't matter, da 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 I think that's it's kind of selfish. I'm like, put your foot in the game and also realize it's bigger than the game, but, but still stay in the game so you can help other people that don't have access to the game. And that's where my head is at. So, you know, I'm lucky to work with Masterclass, Nike, you know, the work that I do at GQ, it's spreading this message, but really also staying honed and and staying, you know, true to myself while also, you know, not resting on my laurels. So I suppose that was a long-winded approach to saying my vision of health at this moment is interdimensional. Yeah. And it's a thought process of trying to raise awareness in, in various areas. Amazing. Obviously, we have a lot more access now as individuals, especially with technology, to learning about wellness. I know you were an athlete growing up. What was your relationship like with health when you were younger? And what 
did your parents teach you and what was your community's approach to that? Uh, I grew, I'm one of seven. I grew up in South Orange, New wow. Jersey. Um, yeah, I got a big family. <laughs> um, my dad's a doctor. My mom, she was a stay at home mom and she took care of us and taught us how to read and, you know, really pushed our intellectual pursuits. My dad uh, really pushed us from both a, both of course, intellectual, also sport, nutrition, teaching us. I grew up around all that stuff. So to me, it was normal. But then you realize when you're out in the world and getting older and, you know, eventually go away to college that things are a little bit different. But sports and community were big when I was growing up. Track was huge. So, you know, junior Olympics during the summer, basketball leagues, YMCA, middle school teams, football, Pop Warner was huge. And it was also an amalgamation of many different cultures. It was white, black, Jewish, a bunch of different both ethnic and racial groups. So for me, I was always immersed in it. And, you know, it's a, and it was also a mix of socioeconomic because Jersey, the way Jersey works is like all these little, as all these little villages, basically. So you have like North and you have East Orange and you have South Orange and you have Maplewood. They're all in close proximity, but they're made up of so many different types of individuals. So you couldn't ignore both, you know, affluence, but also you couldn't ignore socioeconomic status. So, you know, my dad was part of Head Start programs and, and, and also in Montclair, he had a separate office over there that worked pretty closely with low income families as well. And, you know, I used to be over there because I actually, and I, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but between eighth and ninth grade, I did not go to school. I was basically held back. So I skipped first grade, went to second grade. I was good at sports, but I was small. So to make sure I developed my parents kept me out of school between eighth and ninth grade. Really? Yeah, I was just home. Like, I was just home. Like, and my dad got me a couple tutors, but mainly he got me textbooks and was like, you got to teach yourself. So between eighth and ninth grade, it was like my internship in like self-sufficiency. Like my dad put me in like tap dance class. Like I used to have to go to my, I, I had to figure out public transportation, going to Montclair where he was at doing my coursework, having tutors here and there. But it was mainly like me having to stay on top of myself. I don't even know where he got these textbooks from, but these textbooks and workbooks, like teaching myself algebra and trigonometry and having a tutor once a week. But with all that being said, was like I was just immersed in so many different things and seeing what my dad was doing, seeing what my mom was doing. So growing up, health was very in, intrinsic and we were taught wellness strategies, whether that was my parents teaching us, you know, a multi-denominational spiritual pursuits and my mom composting and teaching us how to cook. But the doctor's office was attached to my house. So understanding supplements and things of that nature very early on were fascinating to me. Yeah. So I, I always say like I had an 18 year head start. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, so great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. And probably a, a great foundation. You know, you went and played football at University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League academics, a lot of pressure in a lot of different ways. It sounds like you probably had a really great foundation just to get you started and keep you rolling through all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because you go to college and, you know, I was a little bit of a hard-headed kid. I, I probably should have used family support more in college. But you then you trust adults. The the best thing college taught me was don't trust adults just because they're adults. <laughs> and then now when we're adults, we realize that most adults have no idea what the fuck they're doing. So that's why also mentorship is important to me because a lot of adults out here don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so my thing was, was like, 
you trust your coaches, but if you don't got the best coach, then you can't get full athletic development. So that was the case for many of us. Our strength and conditioning coach at the time was just 10 years behind. Like he, he just didn't get it. And that caused some injuries and that caused some hardships. But I returned back to my roots and that was basically, you know, the formation of the Ultra system was relying on my dad again to help me get back into playing shape after I dealt with some injuries. But yeah, college was hard. College was hard. You get you get thrown into the fire between the ages of 18 and, you know, 21, 22 with life stuff. Yeah. Whether it be with relationships, whether it be with finances, having to work. So I had work study, whether it be with schoolwork and understanding how to deal with not just your peers, but also kind of, you know, teachers are nothing more really than just managers, who, you know, trying to having to deal with that setup parties. So it was crazy. I mean, school was definitely hard, but football, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. You know, I still have my moments of shine, even though I was dealing with my injuries and it, and it was, it was exciting. I wouldn't be where I am today without it uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. I was actually talking to my tennis coach last week about that moment for athletes when you go from living a certain level of intensity between training and playing games to suddenly, you know, graduating and being like civilians, basically. And he was (laughs) saying that depression is a very common part of that gear shift because you're trying to take this pace that you've been living at and integrate that into some kind of adult future. And I'm interested about what the mental process was for you of graduating out of that athlete phase. Yeah, I think I had that. I went through that depressive phase earlier on because I missed a year due to an injury. So I realized very early on, once sport is taken away from you, it fucks you up. Yeah, it was bad. Like I was uh, probably in a relationship by the time I shouldn't have been in. I was missing class. I was, you know, I was doing stuff that a kid shouldn't be doing at that age for better or for worse. And then I realized like, you got to get your shit together. Like I just had a moment one night where I just realized I really had to get my shit together. Yeah. I think I like broke down on tears on the street coming home from a party late because I forgot to call my dad on his birthday or something. And it, the memory stuck with me and it was like, something hit me. It was like, yo, you have to get your life together. And of course I'm sure I had a few other friends that told me the same and I bounced back from it. But I had that year between my sophomore, you know, sophomore year is supposed to be my year. I missed that between my sophomore and my junior year where I went through that, where I went through, you know, being part of a sports team, having that taken away from me. And then I was basically a, a civilian. I was a student. I was still rehabbing. So I basically had a, had that experience early. So when I graduated, I didn't, I didn't graduate into a normal stance. Right. So I went and I worked for a health startup, a health food startup called Health Warriors. So Chia Seeds, Chia Bars. It taught me a lot, but the main thing that it taught me was that I never wanted to work in its contemporary sense. I can't, I, I didn't like my manager. I appreciated the person who hired me, the founder of the company was from UPenn. And he uh, he was like, look, like you're a smart kid. I just like you as part of my team. I know you won't be here forever. And big ups to him because when I sat down, I had dinner with him when I was get, when I wanted to quit. And he was like, you have my blessing. He's like, I get it. I, I knew you weren't going to be here that long. So talking about this depressive stage, there is a huge shift that a lot of athletes go through, pro athletes, college athletes, even high school athletes, when they shift out of their sport and they have to acclimate into an environment that is, it's atypical for us in a sense that athletes are abnormal in being high achievers. So whether you are abnormal on the better end or the bad end, you're still abnormal, whether you're great or whether you're poor, those are abnormal in terms of the spread. 
So then a lot of people have to struggle with then that assimilation in the standard life in which people don't know certain things that are particular to athletes, which are you're, you're judged based mostly off of results for the most part. Uh, it's very, it's very quantitative. Uh, there's high accountability. Yeah. Uh, there's empathy, but there's not sympathy, which is a little bit different. Everybody wants sympathy instead of empathy, which is weird because a lot of people don't deserve the sympathy that they claim for. So for me, I, I wanted to create my own world. It was like, I don't want to live in this world for the most part where people are just kind of working to work. They're not pushing themselves towards self-actualization type of thing. So post-college, I didn't necessarily deal with that, but I do understand those that do. And I was very lucky and perhaps even a little naive where I'd said, I'm going to kind of just bet on myself and hope it pays off. Now that I look back on it, I was definitely a little, uh, I was definitely a little bold in the leaps that I took, but I think it's helped stave off for me that issue that stems from athletes. Because my concept is, is like sport of life. I'm an athlete of life. And, but there's some days as athletes know where you don't want to do anything and you've got to chill and you got to focus on your recovery. I still have the ability to do that, which I'm thankful for, but I can't get up in every day and just be at the whim of someone else. I feel that I'm hundred <laughs> percent with you there. What did you study in school? So I uh, minored in sociology, the concentration of health and medicine. Okay. And I minored in consumer psychology, which is a mixture of marketing and psychology so I feel like that served you well though <laughs> yeah it served me well it served me well because I know I'm fascinated by human behavior and I I can see through the fluff so it helps me like I say they're like you know I'm a big Charlie Munger guy Barnum Street guy I think I can see through the codes of life like I see the underlying algorithms so I can it also allows me to cut through my own bullshit I know everybody wants to talk about like the algorithms of social media and that type of stuff but there are like societal algorithms that if you just know how to pick them up, make life a lot easier. Yeah. So it's definitely, uh, it's definitely helped me both personally and in my work. Yeah, that would be helpful for sure. So you went out on your own, started training, and then was Nike the first brand that picked you up early on? I feel like you started working with them quite quickly. Yeah, so Nike was, there was a short stint with Under Armour very briefly, but when they had a performance center in New York that ended up closing down. That was like really short lived. So the Nike story is actually crazy. I don't even know if a lot of people know this, but with Nike, they had come and scouted one of the classes I was teaching at S10. So the first thing with that is I wasn't even supposed to be teaching that class. I think Robin, who Arzon, who is with Peloton, she had was doing a run strong class at S10, but she was often traveling. So she wasn't, she couldn't teach a class. She asked me to cover like the day before. I covered it. I almost canceled it, but I covered it. I show up and then there are people at Nike scouting the class. I didn't know this. After the class, they come up to me like, look, we're working on this project. We think you'd be great for it. Can we have your contact information? I'm like, sure. Like, for sure. I don't hear from them for months. And then I get a call randomly, a call or an email. It's like, Joe, I've been trying to get in contact with you. Can you come into the office for like an audition, basically for their trainer network that they're creating for this project called 45 Grand? And I was like, yeah, sure. But does it have to be today? Because I had to catch a train in two hours to go to Boston to give like a quick talk, a couple talks. And they were, at first they said, yeah. And they were like, no, you got to come in today. But what's crazy even about that was, and this is why I will always be indebted to people who go out of their way to help someone else. 
the manager at the time who was in charge of this, this woman, Erin, she came out, when I got to the office, she came out and talked to me. She said, I looked on the list and I saw your name wasn't here. And I had to get in, con- I had to get in contact with you because I thought you'd be great for this. That has always stuck with me every moment for because I have to pay it for because there is always somebody on the inside, especially when I was coming up that vouch for me mm. that I have no idea about or, I, or I'm aware of or not aware, but I had to be somebody besides myself, yeah. no matter how ready or accredited I may have been for a position had to say, Joe is that guy, or let's think of Joe. Or in this case, Aaron was like, where's Joe? So she came out and I was like, look, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have time to prep. And I remember, I remember the spread of people that were there. There's people that I, I looked up to, right? There's people at that time in the industry. I was like, wow, I want to do what they're doing. And Aaron was like, I know you have to leave. I can sneak you in. This is what you're going to have to do. I'll give you 20 minutes to prepare. And I was like, all right, right. You know, just got myself together, went in and did it. And then what's crazy is I remember a lot of the people that were there were so relevant then or nowhere to be found now. Mm. And that's the, also has stuck with me, which is like, and that's one thing that I say, you got to, you got to hunt, you got to kill your idols. But then at the same time, you also have to slightly move in silence because I know there's people that want to be where I am, but they have no idea where I'm actually going. So by the time you get here, that's totally fine. Yeah. I want you, I'll plant some seeds for you, but I'll also make sure that, you know, I have already harvested my crop. You know what I mean? But yeah, Nike was the first brand that came that really uh, vouched for me in, in developing relationships there, incubating ideas. Then, you know, where the industry is now, really thinking about integration between running and training, holistic training, more concierge-based work instead of just group classes. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely put in my hours with Nike. Um, still have a great relationship with them today, still signed to them, and it's only going to keep growing. So great. So then how did that turn into you training like every fashion designer and model <laughs> in New York? Yeah, it elevated, escalated quickly. Yeah. So basically what happened with that was, so Nike had this project called 45 Grand. They basically created a private studio that was a hybrid of showing their new products and developments while also having a concierge service for editors who basically could come in and train um, and, and a select individual. So it's basically a private gym. And I kind of became like one of the most requested trainers there. But then I had Derek, Derek Glasberg. Oh, okay. And Derek. That was, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like anybody else. And then he got linked with me and we just created like a budding friendship. Like we really clicked. Yeah. And then it kind of grew from there. So Nike would hook me up with some clients. And then I would also just create friends in the industry. And then people talk, people talk. So basically what happened with that is it continued to grow. Social media also helped at that time. Social media was a little bit different then. And, but how I got, actually like how I got Heron, Preston before Heron blew up was basically, and this is what a lot of people don't realize is I did so much for free, but I also basically used friends or reduced rates for test subjects. Mm. So basically I displayed my process. So I was very open with it. I had really good success with one of my friends. Heron saw that, DM me and was like, yo, I want to come train. What's up? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Come through. Let's, let's get it done. And then I got Heron in really good shape. He probably lost 20 plus pounds. And he like got shredded. Virgil saw that. And then Virgil, Heron connected me with Virgil. This is probably a year and a half before Virgil like really blew up two years. He connected me. Virgil started to come in and train. We we connected and started to have a good, like have a good friendship. 
And then I started training Ricardo because of half Derek, half Nike. And then what happened one night was, and this is why I tell people always to show up, right? Is that there was a Nike and Ricardo Tishi kind of like party. Ricardo invited me to actually to the party. It wasn't even like through Nike. He was like, oh, I'm having this, like just come through. And I had like a long work day, super long work day. I was like, even I'm not even gonna go to this. Like I'm not even dressed right, but I show up. And that's why I always tell people just show up, show up there. And like everybody's there, right? Like Ricardo's there, Virgil's there, Derek's there, Naomi is there. And this is how I got Naomi as a client is that I come in, never met, never met her before. I think she was, I don't remember who she was sitting next to, but everybody in the party, Virgil, Derek, and Ricardo, like, you got to train with Joe. You got to train with Joe. She was like, I don't know. I don't really like training. But she was like, they were like, you got to go. And then she was like, okay. And then she gave me her number and she was like, I'm going to come tomorrow. And I was like, okay, for sure. And then what's crazy is I almost lost her as a client because I was like, oh, can you change the time to so-and-so? She was like, like, no. She was like, I already have it in my schedule. I'm like, all right, just show up. And then she showed up and I, you know, I've been training her for the past three plus years on and off and like understanding all those different things. I got started training, you know, Bella Hadid also through a mutual friend for a period of time, the Victoria's Secret fashion shows at the time were super big, but I was just showing up, I guess is the easiest way to describe it. And, you know, the biggest advocates will not just be your friends, but people who you, who you show up for. So, yeah, I mean, it just kind of, it just kind of happened. And then I was everywhere. I was in Paris. I was in Milan. I was just doing it up. So it's pretty crazy. I guess the people who I have trained and, you know, the other opportunities that has got me, but there's a lot of sweat equity there. Don't, don't doubt it. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Since a lot of your clients are creatives, what are your thoughts on physical health ability to supercharge inspiration and creative flow? I mean, if you look at just the research, right, it's like the things that proper wellness strategy does for the brain is crazy. When you sleep properly, the brain literally cleans itself. It connects ideas together to enable creativity. When you work out, of course, you get a nootropic factor simply delivered to the brain, which help with neuroplasticity. Some research shows like when you take care of yourself, your natural gifts will come out. So working with creatives, I guess, very distinctly, you know, when I was very heavily doing it at that time. And I think my career trajectory has shifted a little bit. I'm, I'm not training nearly as much. But what I realized with working with them and then couple with my own work was it's like kind of how LeBron does low management. Everybody's so fixated into thinking, oh, I have to work out this much, this amount of times per day to be healthy type of thing. But what it showed me with creatives was like, this is just an enablement for you to do well at other things in your life. So you just have to do enough. You don't have to do a lot. But the benefits for fitness, for movement, for wellness strategies for the brain are, is just kind of insurmountable. So the ability to get that blood flow the ability to have stress modulation strategies and to understand that working out is introducing a stress. So if I've been able to cope with that, it's also health promoting, it becomes better. So the research definitely is there. Basically, athletes are nothing more of other than, you know, to an extent, like self-designers of the body. Mm. And the more that we understand that and the more that we realize that really athletics is, is a slightly creative pursuit in itself the better it becomes. So I, th- I think everybody who's a creative should have their own wellness practices. 
For sure. I find this such an interesting topic because as humans, we can sometimes try and classify other people and ourselves like you're a jock or you're an intellectual or you're spiritual or you're creative when really building a fulfilling life is about exploring all different sides of our individual potential, which I think is kind of has an interesting link with what you were talking about with Ocho system, just thinking about things in a way more holistic way. Yeah, you nailed it on the head. I mean, I think for a gift and a curse, I think with me, it's like people with my work early on always struggled how to classify me, right? Mm. It was like, I was a little bit of an enigma. And I think basically what you're talking about is like, can you take a skill set and apply it to a whole bunch of different areas, but also can you create a well-rounded skill set of self? And it's like, you're not a, you're not a runner. You're not a pro athlete. So one, to classify yourself as one thing is disingenuous or slightly egotistical or lazy. You're not just a yogi. You just choose only to do yoga. You're not just a runner. You just choose only to run. You are not good enough to say that is what you are. Yeah. And if that is the case, why just segment yourself to one thing, especially if it pertains to pursuits of self. Now for work, I get it. A lot of us don't have the ability to spread ourselves in multi dimensions and we need to focus on one thing. And our work's not the most important thing in our life, but to be ourselves or to fully delve into the potential of self to say you are one thing is so ridiculously limiting. I will never understand it. I just, I would never relate. So like when people, you know, even sometimes on podcasts or interviews or whatever, like, oh, like when people get confused about how to classify me, I'm like, yeah, that just should be the way that it is because I am Joe Holder. I am, I am just me. I am not a trainer. I am not, you know, just a columnist. I am not whatever you want to say that I am. I do many things which is fine, but I'm still am, you know, who I am. So at the end of the day, if we are all athletes or we all are whatever for the sport of life to segment yourself to one thing, when you're not even good enough to segment yourself to one thing, why do that? You contain multitudes. Yeah. Like literally, yeah. <laughs> to make it succinct, like literally. So you, you mentioned that you're a columnist, you write a wellness column for GQ. How did that come about? I mean, like the GQ thing is super interesting because basically I got a good team around me that helps me bring, you know, the ideas to life. How that came about was, and this is, again, you got to show up. I had done a, a stint with the New York Times real quick, like a week long and change situation that had culminated in a, in a Q&A in the Sunday Times. But basically I, well, people were writing in questions and I worked with the New York Times to answer them for their wellness section. And that was going on. Uh, Will Welsh had just went over to GQ. I knew Will Welsh through training him for some Nike stuff and also just crossing paths around the way. I don't remember when this was, what year, maybe 2018, but I went to Paris. I wasn't supposed to go. I think it was men's. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go, you know, at the end of the day, just show up, see what happens. I'll probably end up training some people, just probably just have a good time. Basically, it's just like a, Paris Fashion Week is just a convention. Like, let's be honest. Like, Fashion Week is just conventions. I mean, it's great. It's great to see friends also putting stuff out. But I showed up, got off the plane, and Heron had a show. So I pulled up the Heron show, and I was sitting down. And then Will was there. And he walked up to me. He was like, yo, Joe, what's good? What's going on? And we were shooting a shit. And he, and he goes, you know, GQ's building out their contributors. Are you are you writing for anybody right now or what's up with the New York times thing? Is it, is there a not compete issue or whatever? And I'm like, no, no, I, you know, my thing with writing is, is that a lot of people that write about wellness have no skin in the game. So I'm definitely interested in writing and contributing. 
And it grew from there. And, uh, you know, went back home after that. I, you know, I went into his office, had a few meetings and interviews, and it seemed to be a good match and proceeded from there. But again, just show up. That's all I could say. I just have always showed up and then opportunities come. And then when the opportunity presents itself, typically I'm already qualified for it. And then I just do the work that I'm supposed to do. Has it been nice to have that structure of deadlines you need to write for? So you're always kind of in research mode and forming new ideas around performance? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, it keeps me in the zeitgeist of work. And I also have other work to do, I suppose. But it it does make me... I needed that. I needed a little kick in the butt to have deadlines. I say, get it done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because sometimes you could just be floating and <laughs> you know how it goes and nothing ever gets shit. Like just shit. One of my good friends always says that to me, but totally. yeah, it's been good. And I'm kind of building from there. I, you know, I think I'll have a book deal in the next 18 months working on that. And uh, yeah, it's been nice. That's so exciting. Yeah. I mean, I got to keep going. I'm like, what am I? I can't keep doing what I was doing, especially when the climate has changed and not allow that. Yeah, things have changed a lot. I know a big part of your desire to communicate through these bigger platforms is also about social impact and democratizing knowledge about what we put in our bodies, how we move our bodies, our relationships with our minds, making that information more accessible. What are some of the issues you're seeing and how do you hope to continue growing that social impact side of your career? Uh, The issues that I'm seeing in terms of social impact, I think, is that people people have a hubris associated with certain things instead of just looking perhaps at the ability to apply their ingenuity to what already exists. That's one thing. The belief that there can't be top-down change because at the end of the day, you know, the stroke of a pen, half of poverty can be wiped out in the U.S., Social impact also is tough because a lot of brands and companies, they, they kind of put it to the side. They don't put it as the main, one of the main objectives. So that's what I've seen. But I've, it's also given me an avenue to, to do work yeah. for better, for worse. But I think a lot of people also don't realize it takes time. Right. And that is one of the hardest things. But that's also what fitness tells you, that nothing changes until everything does. So the hardest thing about social impact is that we didn't consent to a lot of the issues where we have right now. We're doing consent to existence, but we're now born into it, but we don't understand the long-term longitudinal patterns that have resulted in what we are dealing with now. I mean, James Baldwin says it very well. He was like, to paraphrase his quote, he's like, history is not the past. We are our history. And so if you pretend that you are not, then you're basically a fool. Mm. So the thought process with social impact, a lot of the times is you have to, be committed to having skin in the game, even while at the same time you are focused on still making your own life or livelihood, which I, I think is the most difficult thing. And then, you know, because I think this is a curse of social media. People think that they have to care about everything. My thing is be informed, but put your foot in the ground just about a few things. So for me, I have four key things I'm concerned about that I'm saying I'm going to focus my work. And that's mainly like mental health, that's physical activity. Uh, that's access to nutrition and that's environmental care. I say, those are my four things. This is my platform for the rest of my life. Those are the four things I'm going to focus on. That doesn't mean I don't care about what you want to change, but I'm going to say, I'm going to focus on changing that. And I just think if people said that with social impact, like this is the thing I'm going to focus on changing instead of just being loud about everything. 
why is nobody talking about this? Why is nobody talking about this? Uh, climate change, this, it's whatever. It's like, hold up. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Focus and concert your efforts and then, you know, build a community that will hopefully help you as well. Makes you more potent. Yeah. I mean, otherwise it's just dissipating energy. It's mm-hmm. like, you're just yelling into the abyss. It's like, what's the point? Yeah. It's wild because America is in the midst of, well, in addition to the global health crisis, a national health crisis. Last year, the U.S. adult obesity rate was 42%, and it's increased by 26%, I think, since 2008. And I feel like with social media, we're also kind of the vainest we've ever been, which <laughs> which is kind of interesting evidence to me that the compare and despair nature of our current society isn't actually motivating anybody to live healthier I'd be interested to know your thoughts about the difference between self-love versus shame as motivators for self-betterment. Shame will result in a structure of society changing, but it will not result in the change of self. Mm. So basically, if you shame enough, right, then eventually governing bodies will have to say, holy shit, this is a problem we can't, we have to deal with this in some way. Mm-hmm. So integration is a good example of that. Smoking is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, seatbelts are a good example of that. Shame works. Even, you know, maybe gun laws later down the line, changes in police structure, whatever. Shame works when you shame a large body through pressure that says you have to act. How can you ignore this? Right. That's where shame works. Yeah. Shame does not work in making the individual push to change. Mm, mm-hmm. Shame will only not even motivate, but pressure or make it easier in some way for the individual to change because the structure now around them has changed. Okay. So for instance, whether it has to do with, you know, new zoning laws because uh, a township has been shamed or pressured into changing. So then a human can then flourish. Right. The issue becomes then on the individual level, I've seen shame as being de-energizing. And then what you had talked about with this self-love conceptualization is, (laughs) to be honest, everything cannot be accepted. There are certain things that are wrong. Mm -hmm. A good example of this is with obesity, right? But there's a proper way you have to look at this. So for the obesity issue, it is not all down to the individual, right? So much is changing the environment. That's why there's obesogenic environments. So especially endocrine disruptors, certain things, light pollution that will typically lead to these factors. But then the thing that we cannot do, well, I will preface this by saying, if you're overweight and work out, you are typically, at least from a metabolic structure, healthier than somebody that is normal weight or skinny and does not work out. But to say that we just have to be totally accepted and this self-love concept, especially these days when people who are pushing self-love have had work done on their bodies, <laughs> have had surgical augmentation. Yeah. And they're telling you to be accepted of your weight. They won't tell you that they've had surgical augmentation and you're still slightly overweight and it's preaches body positivity, but they have had physical augmentation on their bodies and they're telling you to accept it. You cannot accept obesity, right? What you can accept are perhaps changing certain medical definitions if they might be a little bit biased, whether it has to do with Mm -hmm. BMI, whether it has to do with blood pressure, whether it has to do with vitamin D levels, things like that. But to be totally accepting of certain aspects as it pertains to individual health that is killing us, 
to totally say that uh, there's a difference between body positivity and body neutrality. Yeah. I am for body neutrality. I am not for total body positivity because if somebody has a health condition that can be changed. And, you know, as a black man, it's literally killing people that look like me. I cannot say, oh, just accept yourself as you are. I could say, do not be critical of yourself, but let's figure out ways to enable you to be a bit better, to be a bit healthier, that that type of thing. So I think the pendulum has swung a little bit too far. For sure. But it was the other way. It was too critical before. It'll even itself out. Well, it's tricky because we almost have to change the messaging from there's this weird narrative around physical activity being punishment or like you do something because you're critical of yourself. But if you just think of health and the pursuit of health as an act of self-love, yeah, I think that that is potentially really positive. It's self-preservation. Mm. Like, of course you, you can do all, I mean, I'm a little bit, I suppose more pragmatic and utilitarian. Yeah. Like give yourself some love. For sure. Like love is important. Love is care. Love is so many different things. Right. Love is fellow feeling. Love is, you know, love is love, as they say. <laughs> but it's also self-preservation. It yeah. Is, it is not a fucking, it's not a bubble bath for the sake of bubble bath. Mm-hmm. It is fucking a revolutionary act to say, I'm going to take care of myself and within a culture that does not want me to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. So with all this soft kind of self-love, just work out because you love yourself. To me, I'm taking care of myself and I want to help others to do it. That's a fuck you to a society that does not want me to live well. Love that. And honestly, figure out whatever way you want to do it. But this self-love stuff, it it removes the, the revolutionary historical context of self-care. Yeah. And that's that's what kills me. It, it removes all the work of Angela Davis, removes the work of, you know, whatever, the Black Panther Party, removes the work of just civil rights around the world. And especially within the U.S., it removes the work of people who have been putting in the effort in the women's health care. There's just so much there. Mm-hmm. So to just be like, oh, you know, just, you know, working out is just this this lovely process. It's like, yeah, it could be lovely, but it's a preservation of self. You're right. It is radical. I I've thought a lot about the moment where we switched from being more community oriented and taking care of each other as a community and as individuals to having this reliance on government. And the second you do that, the government is not going to go about making the best possible decisions for your health necessarily. So I think that it is an interesting take back of power to say, I'm responsible for my body. I'm going to make the best possible choices around that. And yeah, you're right. Maybe self, self-love is a little bit too soft in going about that. The government is nothing more to an extent than a formalized business, but that also gives it jurisdiction to enact force within an area. Yeah. The only difference between business and government is that businesses, at least most of them, don't have militarized arms. But it's all a money-making business. So, But my thing is, I still it's not necessarily relying on the government, but you should push the government to take care of us for sure. Yeah. But I think it, it starts, it starts within the community. It starts on the block and then it has to trickle. But, you know, I've been reading a lot of Henry David Thoreau lately and he talks very closely. He was locked up. He didn't pay his taxes, but him paying his taxes was a form. He said for the state of Massachusetts, I cannot give a dollar to the state if I know if that dollar is going towards anything that might be wrong. So in his case, he was staunch anti-slavery abolitionist. And he talks about the relationship between man and the state. And then because coming off the Civil War, the relationship between the state and the union itself. And he says, what's different between the union, between man and the state? Why did, 
Man also should take jurisdiction over themselves and enforce the state to act in their best interest. In short, that's what I totally agree with. Like we have to force the state to act in our best interest, but if it doesn't, then use the codes as they currently exist for what they're worth to make sure that we are taken care of accordingly. In the same way, when the PPP loans in the U.S. were first put out, remember all the, uh, what did the big businesses do? They took advantage of it. They got the PPP loans. Yeah. They, they played the game. So at the end of the day, my thing is, you can't throw out the rule book until you know the rules. And if more of us knew the rules and took advantage of the rules, I guarantee you they would change in our betterment. Also, because individuals who are in power would realize we're getting too hip to the game. So they would probably throw us more bones. But I don't know. That goes gets a little bit out there. But at the same time, it's just, I don't know, it's just crazy. We can't rely on the state. I, I, I agree with that. But I do think the state owes us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're paying for it. Yeah, like literally, like it's all money. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. All right. Well, tell me about exercise snacks. Oh, snack squad. <laughs> as yeah. as a way of taking back power and, yeah, and getting some true. snack action in your day. Yeah. Actually, reminds me, I need to hit my lawyer back out about something for that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do it after this. Yeah, exercise snacks was so back in 2013. I read a study that pertained to diabetes patients about controlling the blood sugar, which basically discussed, which basically discussed if you broke up your exercise into two 20-minute segments instead of one longer 40-minute segment, it had typical better control over their blood sugar. Hmm. And I continue to think about that. That stuck with me for so long. I mean, in 2013, I, I registered the URL, exercisesnacking.com, but I realized that it didn't make sense for the time, but it always stuck with me. So for me, I would always exercise snack. I would go for walks. I would, you know, do, we see the ability of short bursts of movement that typically will improve our health. Mm -hmm. It may not improve our aesthetics and our initial performance, but it will improve our health and our fitness. Then I slowly, I just saw how, how intense the fitness world was getting. I'm like, even me, I would, even in the gym, I would just work out by myself. I would do my own thing. I want to work out with other people because I played football in college, so all the macho shit, like, wasn't for me anymore. I'm like, why is every, I, I was always confused. I'm like, why are people just putting themselves through this? And then why would anybody else want to do that, like, in terms of clients or whatever? And I'm like, your clients don't want to, people in the gym don't want to see a bunch of trainers working out shirtless or something. I'm like, that's, it's weird. <laughs> but anyway, it always stuck with me. I'm like, you know, I'm just doing my thing. I'm making sure I'm staying healthy here and there. And I would, of course I would push myself at times, but for the most part, it's really all about maintenance. Mm. And if you really look at the science and then when um, the pandemic hit, I was in the Cayman Islands for my birthday and Naomi called me and she was like, I, I got to work out, you know, so we started working out over Zoom. I came back to the U.S. because I felt like I had to be in New York to experience what was going on when it when it happened because mm-hmm. the borders were about to close. So I came back and Naomi was then like, oh, we should do this on Instagram. Like we should go live. It was her idea to do these lives, which went for over three months. So it was crazy. Yeah. But during this time, because I had written an article about exercise snacks for GQ later, I realized that people wanted also to keep up with the workouts, but I didn't want to do it on my main page because it would just get too much. Mm -hmm. So I made this separate one to just espouse this philosophy of just making movement a movement. I'm like, yo, if we can just do 20 to 30 minutes of workouts a day, coupled with being in lockdown, it really helped people, but help people understand that there's a different way to approach 
fitness and to really understand that it could be health promoting. So that's what I think is missing, you know, and now exercise snacks is my personal thing has grown, but now you also see it within the general zeitgeist is that people need to understand what it means to use movement as health promotion, Mm -hmm. not just fitness promotion or performance promotion, because what you do for performance is not necessarily what is best for health. And that's where the disconnect with common pop is because they don't understand all the other stuff that athletes do to make sure that they stay healthy. And then back to this concept of life as a sport, you being an athlete of life is we need to work out. So we, we, we feel good enough or healthy enough to do well in the world. We're not trying to run a mile as fast as we possibly can. So I think people have just appreciated exercise stacks because it's a teaching module. It kind of shows you that less can be more. It's lighthearted. It's kind of like adult gym class. And I think it breaks down, you know, even what you mentioned earlier was like, you know, it's hard to miss me as a figure. I think people can be initially very intimidated by me or or what they think are my thought processes until they kind of understand. But yeah, I mean, exercise snacks has been great. I mean, I've, I just have old injuries, so I can't be going hard all the time. And it allows me to show another side of what fitness and movement can be. Well, it's really accessible too, right? Which yeah. is nice because there can be a financial barrier for entry for people who want to get fit, a time issue. But like you were saying, you know, everyone has access because of their phone now. So if you have the ability to get to the page and do a bit of a workout every day, then it's less of a step than having to, you know, go sign up at Equinox or whatever ends up being the things that people think being fit means. Yeah, you're completely correct. So a very exciting thing happened this year. You were invited by Masterclass to teach their first ever health and wellness course. Tell me about that. That's so incredible. Yeah, that was crazy. That was one that was hard to keep under wraps, but um, they cold emailed me. They cold emailed me. And I was like, this got to be spam or something. I'm like, <laughs> You're like, I'm being trolled. Yeah, I was like, I'm being fucking punked. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ashton, where's Ashton? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, and then it moved forward. And then basically we came up with a health and health and wellness kind of fitness fundamentals class. People have been responded to very well. But the GQ work also helped me with that because it helped me, you know, it was a creative collaborative process with Masterclass. And, you know, they pushed me, I pushed them, and we came together with something that we thought made sense. It was very exciting to, you know, be the first, be the first in that offering. And also, I think to show people, I don't know, it was totally clear to everyone, but if you knew me, like, kind of the way that I think, and, you know, this concept of really me being more so an educator, I suppose, than a, than a trainer or just a, like a fitness class instructor, so... It was exciting. It definitely has opened the door to, to multiple opportunities, but it was fun. I, I shot it in Iceland, which was a crazy experience. And even though we were inside the whole time, it was just, I got to go to Iceland when the borders were closed. Whoa. I got to experience Iceland with nobody there. And I got to, I was there with my brother because I convinced him to do some things with me as part of the class. I grew, I grew closer with my brother. I, I grew closer with myself and it, it was a wonderful experience, you know, hopefully to continue to do things with them in the future. But yeah, it was wild. And I, you know, I dropped a big surprise and hopefully have more in the future. But it was tough. I think it's always hard when you have to put your ideas and really formulate them in a way that is easy for others to integrate and to understand. But yeah, I did a, ma- I did a masterclass. It was just kind of like, uh, it was another a little bit of, uh, 
I don't know. It was like a little bit of a, I told you so moment. There, there, there are certain moments in my life that I like, I get a little cocky about, not even cocky, but it's just kind of like a little bit of a fuck you moment to everybody who said I couldn't do things. And that was one of You're them. like, I did a master class in my twenties. So <laughs> now what? <laughs> but no, nah, it was great. Why did you do it in Iceland? So due to COVID, they couldn't do it in the States because of the size oh, of the crew. Oh, wow. So uh, Masterclass has been, you know, doing work over in Iceland and shooting things there because of the reduced COVID rates mm-hmm. and the ability uh, to have larger crews. Cool. So it was wild. Awesome. Yeah. I've spent some time there. That place is amazing. Uh, yeah. It's like, it's like being on drugs without being on drugs. Totally. It's like being on Mars without being on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy. Nature there is wild. Yeah. So with all of these amazing opportunities coming your way, what does a day in your life look like now? And how much do you adhere to any kind of schedule? Or have you just thrown that out the window? I mean, the two things that I control are my mornings and my evenings. Mm. Those are the two things. And I think they'll make for a better day and hopefully a better life. Uh, if I have a good morning, if I control the morning, I'm more proactive instead of reactive. Yeah. So mornings for me, I take it slow. I try not to check my phone and make a cup of tea. I have either a meditation or a breathing practice, get a little bit of movement in and then just think, just think, right? I just think, I'm like, what do I need to do today? What did I actually do yesterday? What did I do the day before? And not just in terms of work, but what I've realized is, which I think was a part of my twenties when I was so go, 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 go. I was living life, but I wasn't experiencing it. I was forgetting the things I was doing. So it's a very, I don't know how to fully say this, but like I was, you know, I, I was just doing my expenses, you know, and, and, November of 2019, I was in four different countries and five different states. It's easy to not be fully like there. It's just like, oh, I, I can half remember these things. So I've wanted to change that. So control my mornings. You know, I probably wake up around 7.30 now. I'm trying to become more of a morning person, which I wasn't in the past. Good for you. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. So that's why I take it slow. Like for 7.30 to 9, 9.30 is my time. Yeah. But I always like, in addition to this stuff that I said, I always try to accomplish something, but that is like low, low brow or low fi like that is that's something I've been putting off. So whether it be like, you know, scheduling a dentist appointment, folding my laundry, calling my mom, doing the dishes, something that's like, okay, like something that I just need to accomplish something, you know, but that isn't like super work oriented, but that's like, okay, there's a simple start to my day, but also like allows me to be in the moment. And then during the workday, I mean, it's contingent upon, you know, the projects that I might have, you know, I'm definitely training a lot less, but whatever, if if there's a particular client or somebody that's in town that I got to take care of, you know, that's in the schedule. But a lot of it now is just working on the projects that are necessary that I've been contracted for, working on my own creative individual pursuit to like building and, you know, my own internal infrastructure. A lot of my work right now is creative and it takes long. Thinking takes time. You know, one of my favorite Mark Newsom quotes are basically about just how inefficient thinking is. And it's true. So that's typically, you know, then my night, I typically shut it down around 9, 9.30. um, And I try to be asleep by 11. I have like a wind down process. I call it the cool down. But it's just basically like remove bright lights, remove high external stimuli, uh, get a light stretch in. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple, I suppose. But now my days are really composed of, I don't really think anybody really knows what I do. I have to time know what I do. Everybody's like, oh, how's training going? I'm like, I don't even answer the question. I'm like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, most of my days are, I'm like, 
What are the projects that I have to do right now that I know that I have deadlines? What are the projects that I want to do or I'm sending pitches out for? And then what are my internal projects that I know I have to be able to get done? So for me, the, the workout things, I continue, of course, to invest in that because that's where, you know, what made me made me relevant. But a lot of it now is figuring out how to scale it accordingly or, or working on distinct projects, whether it be with Nike for app development. Mm-hmm. There's a lot less one-on-one stuff. So I'm lucky. I definitely have more financial freedom than I've previously had in the past. But now it becomes a situation in which I really have to create my future. Mm. And I'm really taking the time and to to do that. Yeah. Yeah, to be present in that. I remember one time we ran into each other in LA and you were training for a marathon and I was about to go into like a 10 day meditation retreat. (laughs) And we were both kind of like, not a your hard thing. I'm going to stick with my hard thing. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to. Was it a silent retreat? Yeah, it was 10 days. How was that? It was really interesting. I mean, I think I prepared myself for it pretty well emotionally because I was like, whatever happens in there, it's all good. But the thing you do notice is your brain is a monkey and following it around. And like you were saying, you know, doing your expenses at the end of the year and going, oh, my gosh, I did all of these things. I think that especially with the bombardment of technology and everything else, it's so difficult to get really potent in our thinking. Mm. So it's great that you allow yourself a beginning and end to the day that really align you with that kind of mental presence. It has to. Yeah. Like, I think it's just so important. I'm just like, just to hop into bed and go to sleep or just to hop out of bed and get right into the day. That's not the way. That's not the way it should be. And like, look at your phone first thing and last thing and and deal with whatever emotional process that stirs up without even getting centered first. Yeah. Yeah. Focusing on the morning and evening has, has also just improved my REM and slow wave sleep so much. I was sleeping, but I wasn't like getting good quality sleep. So yeah, I went on like a whole process of changing that definitely this year. And it's paid off because I just felt I just didn't feel right. And I worked back with my dad. I use certain supplements, but a lot of it was just basically falling in love with the slowness of existence, falling Mm. in love with the darkness, falling in love with the natural rhythms that are associated with life. And getting back to that has been really important to me. And then also even like getting back to immersing myself in reality when I'm taking a walk, not always being on my phone. And you notice how many people just have their heads down on their phone while they're out in the world. Like even today, I was at Grand Mercy Park or no, nah, I wasn't there. I was by Flatiron and there was a, a group of individuals playing music. And I was like, I just sat and I just watched it for about 10 minutes. And I was like, wow, I really thought I was used to be so busy and so important that I couldn't sit and listen to this beautiful music for five or 10 minutes. Yeah. And it's just simple set like that. It was like, I don't know if you listen to Huberman Lab podcast, but if you have a chance, take a listen because it was funny. I was just listening to the podcast. He was talking about the difference between dopamine and serotonin. And basically serotonin is kind of like the, the here and now molecule that allows you to be in the moment. Dopamine is very motivation driven, not necessarily pleasure driven, but motivation. And dopamine, very basically heavy individuals at times, which can be changed, are super go, 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 go. or like Accomplishment oriented. Yeah, the slowdown hurts them. And I think that was me in my mid to late 20s there was that dopamine high, but it was this moment right there. I was very, it was very serotonin oriented. It was very, Mm. you know, our better balance of the here and now while also being driven. Like, don't get me wrong. I will outwork you, but I will also out relax you. 
And I think that is now my superpower is understanding the difference between those two things and then embellishing in them at the proper time. Yeah, it's kind of nice to just be reminded that that balance and alignment between mind and body and spirit that makes us so much more creative and so much more capable of living in an intentional way is really accessible at any moment when you just slow down and be present. Yeah. And you could literally augment them. Like you could, uh, there are also, cause my thing is this, sometimes this esoteric lofty thought is just an excuse to not formalize ways in which you can literally shift yourself. If you want to be more dopamine driven sometimes, by all means, that's really all that coffee is. And there's breathing patterns for that. Fire breath plus coffee, dopamine drive, right? You know, mindfulness while eating with a more pranayama practice or a slow breathing practice for your parasympathetic nervous system. That's just a serotonin drive, right? It's not a situation in which, you know, and this is why sometimes all the soul cycle stuff or whatever, it's like people try to talk in this lofty thought processes, which I appreciate, but it's also, we're all designers of ourselves. Those are things we could do every day to literally change our relation with the world. And to not take advantage of that, especially as a creative, when you have so much time, it's like you really need to be doing half the things that you're doing, but not to explore the inter- inner dimensions of self, I just think is a big L. We all individually are the architects of our own experience. Yeah. Yeah. And then cumulatively, we should work together to make sure everybody else's experience is a little bit better. Like that's, the, you know, but that's a whole other conversation, but that's the stuff I don't get. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's just, why are we not? It's, it's my thing, you know, the saying, too blessed to stress. Yeah. I think if you are blessed, you should stress more because there are people who cannot take on the stress yeah. that is necessary. So, my thing with all this is, it's like, how really self congratulatory do people have to be? Even with podcasts, sometimes I'm like, I can't listen to this shit. Like, y'all, they're just fucking self-congratulatory or just even on Instagram. Yeah. (laughs) Or even on Instagram, that type of stuff. But even with, you know, some elected officials, I'm like, Jesus Christ, you are really just blocking people from the ability to eat. Yeah. Like what, how just give people food. You know what I'm saying? With all that being said, it's just, if you could improve just somebody else's life, right. If you could be a guardian angel on earth, that's my thing. It's like, my thought process is this, as weird as it sounds, for better or for worse, I don't know if, if whatever, if, if I've been reincarnated and I've done enough good in past lifetimes or bad, whatever, but I'm here in this moment, mm-hmm. right? I'm here in this moment and I have the ability to an extent because of whatever, you could call it fate or chance. I am me right now. I have the ability to create my reality to an extent that allows me to live a pleasurable existence. I don't want to continue to live an existence of more. I want to live an existence of enough. So if I, to an extent, am living for me on heaven, on earth, because I've been given the ability to create what I like that allows me to flourish, why not be a guardian angel for someone else? Why not just reach down and help someone else? So, and to them, you're an angel. Whatever you believe in the afterlife or not, whether you believe, I don't matter what you believe in, but just to start this super indulgent, selfish thought process throws me off. And that's why I really fuck with Virgil because Virgil goes out of his way to help people. He's gone out of his way to help me. He, you know, that we work on projects and certain things together, but he pays it forward. And I don't care how many people try to criticize him or give him shit because when you're at a spot like that, or you're, or you're in the process of wanting to do anything. You'll always have people who 
could just never either break through or don't want to put in the work to even have the ability to have a stone thrown at them Mm -hmm. who will never understand. But that man, you know, I I look up to him so much. A million dollar scholarship fund always gives people access to his work so they can get their shine on. And when I, you know, I work with him on certain Nike things and we we had a really long phone call during the pandemic. And, you know, he brought me on as part of this team called Public Domain. And he was like, yo, no matter what, he was like, whatever you want to do is first. He's like, I'm doing this to also help you push you forward, your ideas, things like that. And that is, I, I just try to emulate that. And it goes back to the original Nike discussions is somebody had to vouch for me and people continue to vouch for me. Yeah. So for me to think, and this is where you see this all the time, people, especially with conservatives, people are like, oh, just work harder. They're not working hard enough. Da, 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 da. doesn't matter how hard you work. You might not break through if you don't have somebody that's like, yo, I see something in you. So that is always my thing. It's just like, I just want to, I just want to, I don't know. I just want to help. That's, that's really it. You know, you're the second person on this podcast. I had Tremaine Emery on and you're the second person who's talked about Virgil that way. And I think it's really incredible because it's such a reminder too, that I really believe that when you get to a point where you are doing things for the good of the community and for the world, there is no better sense of fulfillment. And that comes into alignment with the best work that you can ever do. Whatever you're doing for self-gratification in your own little bubble it's not tapping into your full potential until you're applying it on a larger scale for betterment for more than just you. Yeah. Yeah. And he's an embodiment of that. And a lot of people, you know, in this quick click world, you know, won't go and read his interviews, won't go dive deeper into understanding what he's doing. And that's unfortunate. I just look forward to the time for better, for worse, when people really take a look back on his legacy and understand what he's done. And he's always been that way. So it's the first day that I met him, even before he's gotten to this point, he's always gone out of his way to help in any way that he can and all to invite people into his circles. So yeah, I mean, he has literally, he's a game changer. He's a game changer and he's literally changing the lives Mm -hmm. of people. He's literally changing people's lives. And as much as people just want to focus on the fashion thing, it's a Trojan horse. Yeah, It's all a Trojan horse. He's very good at what he does. But his main focus is helping people. And I truly do wish um, and hope that people will realize that before it's too late. Well, you're doing it too. So <laughs> thank you for that. And uh, I guess that's it. That's kind of a nice place to end. Maybe we can all focus on doing that a little bit more with our own lives. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Nice to see your face. You too. All right. Talk soon. Thanks, Joe. Bye. Bye. And that beautiful people concludes this episode of the Inspirati. I hope you picked up some inspiration to take into your day. Please rate, review, subscribe, and leave a comment if you're enjoying these conversations. You can follow the Inspirati on Instagram or find me at alex.merrill. Stay inspired and keep creating. The world needs it more than ever. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.